Welcome to the Toffee Blues, your source for all things Everton, and welcome to another show where, once again, I'm joined by Teddy McAllister. How are you doing, Teddy, first of all? Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks, mate. How about yourself? Uh, yeah, pretty decent. Uh, obviously, in spite of all the confusion that's been instilled in us in the past four or five days since the amazing announcement that was brought out on Sunday. Yeah, it was like an... Um... Boris Johnson channeled us in a Roberto Martinez, didn't he? Just oh. waffling for a long time, but not actually saying anything at all. Well, that's it. I think I'm not sure what was more ponderous: the um, Martinez's build-up play or the well, no, it's, Martinez's speeches weren't too bad. I think it was more Marco Silva-esque, if you ask me. Well, Marco Silva just to just talk into his chest and mumble, didn't he? And, Roberto Martinez would be the one who'd just lay it on thick, like, you know, talking about phenomenal performances after we'd lose 2-0 to all or someone like that. Oh, yeah. The, Boris Johnson on uh, Sunday night, everyone was, everyone, you know, because all, all the little leaks and little tidbits that have been in the press and on social media building up to it, going, oh, what's, you know, there's going to be a change in the, you know, in the, in the lockdown and what we're going to do and watched it and it was just so... It was just as clear as mud. Like, you know, you can do this, you can do that, but not if, you know, the sun's at this angle and not if, you know, the sky's blue. And it's just, yeah, it's going to lead to people not being sure of what they can and can't do. And Well, that's already been seen. You're seeing people getting on the buses in London and the tube and the state of it down there. And I mean, obviously, that's where the most people is as well. So, you open a seriously bad can of worms just there alone, but obviously that's happening all over the country. Yeah, I mean, there will always be people who don't act responsibly, but on the other hand as well, you're always going to have them. So you've got to make it for the people who are going to be responsible, going to make it as clear and easy to follow as possible. And when it's not clear and it's not easy to follow, then you're exacerbating the problem. So I can't even blame um, the majority of people because it's not clear what we're not meant to be doing um, what we are meant to be doing what we're not meant to be doing and I think the thing, the thing is obviously everybody wants to go back to normal but when people aren't given any clarity they're just going to go and do what they want and we'll see yeah, that now I, mean, I think I mean if you say you've got to go back to work unless you can work from home so that's a whole lot of people who need to go back to work. They not, now the option to not go has been taken off them on national television by the Prime Minister. But they've also said, well, you can't, you know, but don't use public transport and don't do this and don't do that. So it's made it really difficult for people. Like, what are they meant to do? Like, they, they, a lot of people don't want us, you know, you know, come out of lockdown just yet. They don't feel at the time. But they've got no choice because, they, you know, they, they've been told they can go back to work. But then they're also, they've got to put themselves at risk by, by travelling, it's just... I mean, it is difficult, but... I think, I mean, the thing is, in the midst of all, obviously, the furlough's been extended till the end of September. But, like you say, there's so many contradictions. People think they're breaking the rules, whichever way they turn. Yeah, that's because the rules aren't clear. It's just simple as that, isn't it? But, I mean, 
just hopefully, you know, we, we are over the worst of it now and we can start to progress because it's not even about um, getting back to normal at this point. It's just about, you know, lowering the death toll because the reason the lockdowns get needs is not because they beat the virus, it's because there's room in intensive care now. That's, that's, that's it's just the grim reality of it. So just hope everyone can, uh, you know, stay safe as much as possible. Well, that's it, I think. I think you'll probably be able to second me on this when I say that it's in everyone's best interest to keep staying at home as much as you can. Uh, if there's any possibility that you can't go back to work, I'd take that option because the more people we can keep at home, the more chance we've got of stopping it spreading. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just good luck to everyone in their own situations. I mean, it's, it's no one's got it easy at the minute, but... Um... Anyway, I think everyone's a little bit sick of the coronavirus. Let's, uh, let's get on to the football, shall we? Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, I think usually when it, when we start these kind of shows, it's usually, uh, oh, what have you been watching? Such a thing, and we've just gone like completely dreary there. So, yeah, we'll get on to the first show. And it's tonight, it's going to be a Remember the Name segment. And tonight is going to be on the brief Everton creative Samuel Eto. We've then got two, the first two of our series of player reviews that we're going to be starting for the current season which is, of course, not necessarily cancelled yet, but given how many, how any possible resumption of the season will probably feel completely different, we are going to start our season reviews anyway, and the first two of them are coming up as well. The segments are going to be separate on YouTube, so we'll introduce them respectively as we move on anyway. And without further ado, we will get on with it, and we are going to look back on the fleeting Everton career of one of this century's most decorated players, the three-time Champions League winner Samuel Eto'o, of course only had six months at Everton, but still a lot to discuss about the fact that he ended up here in the first place, and I'm joined by Terry McAllister to go through it all, of course. Terry, on a scale of 1-2, we're going to win the league. How excited were you when we signed Samuel Eto'o in August 2014? Uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say we're going to win the league, but it was I was very excited because, obviously... Nobody thought for a second we were getting prime Samuel Eto'o, um, but he had come to the Premier League with Chelsea. He had you know, gave a good account to himself, and we, you know, we needed a striker. We at the time Romelu Lukaku was the cemented number one, you know, striker at the club. We just bought him as well, um, you know, the money invested and the you know the confidence invested. So he was going to be our man for the in the coming years, but. The, the manager Martinez himself said at the time, like when you've got when you play one up front, which we did, you need three strikers of different profiles. Obviously, but your main striker, and then we had a Runa Kone for whatever he was worth, and we needed another one. So obviously, we were in the market for a striker. And if you look at some of the other strikers who moved in that window, you know the likes of Ricky Lambert went to Liverpool, and it, you know, there wasn't there wasn't like a, a lot of top quality players moving about. And then out of nowhere, we signed Samuel Eto'o, the, the same Samuel Eto'o who used to rip up the Champions League for Barcelona. He, every single African Cup of Nations, he was a top scorer. It was just surreal. It was it was an absolute superstar name signing for the club. And we did similar a few years later with Wayne Rooney because we had that intimate connection with Wayne Rooney and he came through our academy. It didn't feel like we were signing a a sort of veteran, world-class player when we signed Rooney. It just felt like we were signing Rooney back. as well. Yeah, it, did, it didn't have that sort of, you know, glittering sort of side to it, whereas Etu, I think, definitely did. 
people knew that he was, you know, approaching the uh, the sort of tail end of his career, but it was still Samuel Eto'o. I don't think people could get over it. I mean, I certainly couldn't get over that we'd signed. I mean, he was going to line up in an Everton shirt. Well, that was it. I think, obviously, we talk about the position of Runa Kone took up in the team, but he also took Eto'o's trademark number nine shirt and meant he had to wear the number five, which, you know, didn't go down well with you, did it, Terry? No, I mean, this strikers wearing number five is just not on, is it? Like that, that, that was the only wrinkle in it that we we gave him uh, a dodgy shirt. We, 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 we signed one of the most iconic players of his generation, who's worn number nine everywhere he's been, and we have to give him number five because we've given it to Kone. I know. I mean, I I, I don't um, I don't wear. The, the replica tops, I mean, I, I might start if they ever make one in my size, but the shirt that year, I was was my favourite shirt, like, possibly ever for Everton. And I was, I was thinking, I remember thinking at the time, if I was to ever buy a shirt just to have, it'd be this one, that better on the back, but I just couldn't, number five. I just couldn't. It was, it was just too offensive to me. Sensibilities, you know that's, what I'm that's like? That's the only positive of Eto wearing number five is that you got to save yourself 40 to 50 quid. Yeah, pretty much. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was exciting. You know, he, he came in and he was going to come in and sort of. I don't think anyone expected him to provide competition for Lukaku, but he would compliment Lukaku. You know, like he'd play alongside them sometimes. He'd play, you know, he'd come in for him off the bench. You know, there'd be some games where he he would um start ahead of him. You know, to rotate and all. It was just this was the perfect thing. We got this young, um, you know up-and-coming striker who's our main man, but then we've also got that experienced head who can, you know, come in and see games out, come in and, you know, add a little bit of extra, like, now into a game, can, you know, sort of um, teach the younger striker how to, you know, a few, you know, few of his, a few, a few of his career lessons, and it just, it felt like a really good fit. I mean, Kone at that point had been injured for so long, he didn't even come into the equation, so I think it was just a case of, we knew we had two strikers, one was Lukaku, one was Etu, and it was a. It felt like it was going to be a good combination. What followed is obviously what we'll touch on now. But if, if I was so excited in that summer, of course he, he came in in this very first game. He scored the goal as well, didn't he? We lost five three to Chelsea, six three. Um, he scored one of the goals. Obviously, his former team as well. It was that was a really a bizarre game. Looking back, like it's one of the, it's one of those games that. If we didn't, if we didn't get beat, Everton would definitely be rerunning that now on YouTube on the little live rewatches. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean that was that was the first sort of um, one of the, the first indicators that about was going to go in the next two seasons with Roberto Martinez. Obviously, we were all walking on air with them at that point. You know, going into the second season, we did a fantastic year the season before, and we were in Europe now. And as as we were saying, signed players like Eto. But this game sort of encapsulated them, like shipping goals for fun, but also still being all right in attack. It was it, we didn't. It seemed like an anomaly at the time, but especially after years of David Moyes, it was a bit of a shock to everybody's system. This game, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, we'd see more of that going forward, but it, we no one was as upset. I don't remember at this time because it just seemed like a bizarre game. You know, we. Shipped six goals. No one's happy about that, but we'd scored three, and the new signing had scored, and and you know those Bezic's mistake. But um, it was a, it was a sign of things to come, like the the, the poor defence um, under this manager. You know, against the the discipline that had been put in by Moyes, which he'd sort of lent on the season before and started to go. 
But uh, yeah, Etu scored and um, went to three, did he score again before Burnley? The Burnley game? He did. He scored in the Europa League at Krasnodar. Which, of uh, course, that, that was very interesting again because, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he played for Anzi in Russia before he came to the Premier League with Chelsea. And I think he suffered a bit of racist abuse over there off Krasnodar fans. So it was a bit of an interesting uh, scenario for him to go back there and obviously scored the goal. I think it was a one-all draw, wasn't it? Do you know, I can't remember. I can only, I, I can only remember that it, I mean, I didn't go, but how far away it was. And, like, it was just, it was hours and hours away, wasn't it, on flights and everything? Like, I'm, I'm only thinking it's a draw because if I remember, I remember the game, I think, and I think we played horrifically and we were getting beat. Yeah. And I think we got, he scored the late equaliser. And I think I was just relieved we got the draw because we, we went there and they battered us, to be honest. And again, mm-hmm. that was a sign of what might have happened just a few months down the line in Kiev. Which we the less we talk about that the better. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see wasn't a, wasn't around for that, so we'll just we'll not go into that in this episode. I think Samuel Leto will be very glad he wasn't around for that as well. But obviously he yeah, he got that goal as well and then he was starting to get into the team a bit more. Um we go to Burnley and I think that's probably the the pinnacle obviously of his time at Everton. He scored twice. One of them was an absolute peach as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the thing, that Burnley game aside, the, we 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 squandered that too, I think. Like, uh, when we brought, brought him in, I, you know, touched on it before, I, I had, like, an idea of how he might not be used, like, substitute, play some games, um, you know, in that sort of Naismith role. You know, at the time, we were playing Barkley as the number 10, and Naismith had just slotted around, like, it was, you know, 4-2-3-1, and, Naismith just fits around that three behind the striker at different times. Like sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right, sometimes he'd be behind. And I, I thought he will be another type of player like that. He won't be out wide. He won't be, you know, we would. It was we were not going to play a four four two. It just wasn't what we did. So, yeah. I, now we've moved on to it. But until recently, I never thought any manager would do that at Everton. It just wasn't in vogue. Um, but I did think he play in that sort of 10 role as a shadow striker because we did do that with Naismith. Mm-hmm. Never did. I always felt like Martinez didn't know how to use that too. Like, instead of playing him in games at Goodison Park, we were going to have most of the ball and we were going to have, you know, strong sort of stamp on the game where he's going to get freedom, he's going to get, you know, time and space because the other team are going to be sitting in a more defensive setup. He'll play him then. But the away games, where we're going to be, you know, being more compact, more of a team, more defensive, more structured. He won't play him as much in that, apart from off the bench. But it was the opposite that was true. He was instead of playing him off Lukaku at home, where he'll get time, he was playing him out wide, away from home, where you're just going to get nothing from him. Like, you know, playing him on wide right and wide left to get away to, you know, these Alehouse teams, it's like, yeah, Samuel Leto in his prime would, would rinse any team like that. But at this point in his career, we just weren't getting the most out of it. It was just testament to Martinez, really not. I think it, no, it was it was one of those. I think the Burnley game where they scored those two goals, I think that was the one time he was used in that 10 role, wasn't he? I think Barkley was actually out on the left that game and he used Leto through the middle and obviously he got two goals from 
in the middle of the pitch, funnily enough, like in the middle of the box and one from the middle like of the D outside the box. His quality shone through. Like obviously we went we had Ross Barkley and he was gonna be our number ten, but we were in the Europa League. We had plenty of games where we could have, you know, rotated and used like to, you know, different combinations of players or or like you say, put Barkley out wide for the odd game with an overlapping full back. You know, Baines was a lot younger then and and you know, we had Coleman on the other side and they were both in their pomp, they were both tearing it up at two full backs. We had loads of things we could have done, and just Martinez never done it. He, he just one that he really struggled that second season. I think to kick us on, he, re- he really missed a, a massive opportunity to help us kick on, and maybe obviously with the European competition as well. I think he's done quite well in Europe, but he just like yeah, we misused all, all the players, like you say. We did well in Europe in that season, but we were just flagging domestically and. I, I, to be honest, now when you look back, I mean, obviously Etu left under you know strange circumstances. He only come in in the summer, then he left in the January. Now it was you know there was rumours at the time like he'd fallen out with Martinez. There was rumours that he'd told Lukaku he needed to leave. There was um, you know the official line was that he wanted more first team football, but I, I genuinely think, I mean, I don't know. It's just just you know guessing, but maybe he was onto what we all learned about Martinez. Early on, like we obviously at that time, even though the, the home fought the sorry the domestic form, and took a you know major wobble compared to the season before, we were all still quite high on Martinez at that point, and you know after the the, you know, the wonderful job he'd done the year before, so it was like oh well Etu's obviously a troublemaker, and you know these star players come in, and you know sometimes they're like that, but I think he may have just seen through Martinez earlier than anyone because this is a player who's played for the very best at the very best clubs. We, just saw a joker when he. I think he was a joker when he saw one. I think it's interesting though, but obviously Eto was this superstar, but a player who actually proudly come out and said that he got zero international caps was Sylvan Distan, and he was another model professional who was forced out that season. So he can't have been the yeah. only one. Yeah, I mean it's it's come out now, hasn't it? You know that. Martinez was a, was just not a very good man managing. Like there was a lot of plays he mistreated and didn't you know he, he had strange quirks and you know he went when when the Moyes um, team sort of defensive structure had you know slipped away a little bit. That's when you saw what the, the making of him as a manager. But I don't know. I mean Etu Etu was just one of the biggest wastes. I mean it was we. He was here so briefly. He was only here for a cup of coffee that everyone can just look back at the Burnley goals and the fact that he signed. It's just a fun little, you know, sort of little moments um, in the club's recent history. Like, it was good to sign a player like that, even though he didn't stay. I think it was one of them, though. I think, like you say, it was disappointing, really, that even at that stage of his career, he could have probably given more to the team. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we. For that season and maybe even the next, we could have used them properly. And I think under a better manager, we would have. Like imagine, take that squad that we had then. Imagine we had Ancelotti managing that squad. How much different it'd be. I mean, Ancelotti obviously has got more experience of dealing with top players, but it'd just be such a different scenario. We'd be we'd be seeing Etu used correctly and. You know, we probably we do. We probably do a lot better than we did when we had Martinez. But yeah, if you ask me, we had Ancelotti at the time. We wouldn't have lost Lukaku. We wouldn't have lost players like that. Well, to a 
big what if, isn't big it? What if, you... Yeah, but I'm just convinced that you need to have these kind, the kind of ambitions, bringing in these kind of managers of that caliber to show that you make you're moving in the right direction. And it was clear that maybe it's not to us, but maybe Samuel Leto, like you say, saw through him and knew that we weren't going anywhere under this manager. Mm. I mean, in general, in a broad brushstroke, I am personally quite eager for the club to move away from these signs. Now, historically, we've always signed older players to see if we can get a tune out of them for the last few years. Like, you know, it's a new, you know, Gascoigne, Ginola, um, even Rooney, up in, you know, recently. Um, but Etu was not, I didn't feel like he was one of those, you know, finished players who we just brought in to see if we can get something. I felt like even though he wasn't an advanced age for the, for the role we should have used them for because it's not like we brought him in to be the main striker which we hadn't done with other you know older signings we brought him in to complement a young player and you know sort of improve them and it's something we've still tried to do now we tried to do that with Fabian Delph now he hasn't worked out so far but I'm I'm I look back fondly on it too just because it was such a star name player to buy and it was so unexpected to complement our brand new Record sign and Lukaku. It's just an exciting, exciting time. You know, before you, you know what's going to happen down the line, it's you know, it's that's the, that's the joy of football, isn't it? You, you know, the excitement, the anticipation of new players. Now they're going to work together. It's just a shame we never got to see it used properly. It was, it was definitely a potential wasted there. Not maybe not in terms of obviously the age of him and that, but it was certainly the opportunity that we had to pair two very good strikers together like that doesn't really come along very often and it was it was he was misused at the end of the day and maybe like you say if if he did stir things up in the camp that may well have contributed to his early departure which is highly likely when you consider that it did seem to happen on a number of occasions with Roberto Martinez when I think I don't recall the last couple of games he played for us. I, I, I seem to forget him even playing in the last sort of month he was here. I'm not sure if you have any recollection of no, that. No, sort of I spell. mean, he played... Um, <laughs> I had to Tony Hibbert, didn't he, on a couple of... It was just the one occasion, I think. I, remember, I seem to remember he did it away at Lille. I, was, I went to that game. Uh, and that was just a bizarre sight. The down the right wing, Tony Hibbert and Samuel Etto, which is football, football throws up these strange things, doesn't it? Let's be honest. I think the, the mad thing was, I don't remember Etto doing anything in that game, but I can remember Tony Hibbert doing a couple of drag backs, everyone losing them all. Yeah. Oh, Tony Hibbert showing Etto, you know, the, the skills he hadn't seen yeah, since get, he was like that. Get on, get on this, Sam. Look at this. <laughs> and then obviously, obviously uh, Samuel Etto, he did, he did bring that European experience as well, which we never got to see much of. And it was a, it was a shame because we, we, we were going pretty good in Europe that season. And then obviously Kiev happened. Mm. Um, Kiev. Well, uh, don't, don't make me talk about Kiev. It's still no, yeah, We are going to talk about that. In fact, we're going to wrap it up here. So that, that brings us to the end of the Samuel Eto segment. It seems to be the general consensus here is just, a missed opportunity, really, to get the best out of an aging yet still very talented player. I think that's probably a good way of wrapping it up, isn't it? Mm, I'd say so, yeah. You know, exciting signing. It was good while it lasted, but uh, ultimately misused and a missed opportunity by a manager we didn't know was crap yet. <laughs> um, look, look, look how that turned out. 
Kenny and I are here to kickstart our player review segments for this season. Of course, we know the season could still be resumed and completed, but at this stage, I think we can all agree any any ending to this season is going to have a completely different feel to it, to what came before. So we're going to crack on with it anyway. And we're going to start this series with our big Colombian, Yeri Mina. He's a player who was thrusted into the spotlight at the start of the season after we failed in our pursuit of Kurt Zuma. Mina was, of course, primarily a substitute during his first season at Goodison, but still did well when called upon. But this season saw the need for him to take on a lot more responsibility in the first team. And this show will hopefully discuss just how well he has handled the more prominent role that he was given in the team this year. So, Teddy, what have you made of Mina's performances this year? They've been what I've expected, to be honest. I mean, we only saw him briefly last season. You know, injuries were played a big part. We signed him injured. He got himself re-injured a couple of occasions. And then he couldn't get in the team um, due to the good form of, of Keen Zuma. Now, we're going into this season, you know, obviously we chased Zuma all summer and then, you know, didn't come off and, you know, we know what happened there, you know, last minute loan deals going in for other players and what have you. So we started the season and I honestly, I had no, um, no concerns over Mina's ability. I just the concerns over his injury record, which to be honest, was a sensible thing to think because he is, you know, he is still quite young. He, you know, 22, maybe 23, we're at the start of the season. Um, but he's had all the season before basically out the team. When he had come in, he had played well. You know, the two games against Chelsea were two he was ineligible for. Mina played well in both of those games. So I, I, I knew he, I, well, I felt there was a, a good defender there. My issue was, which has been proven to be wrong, <laughs> um, I was worried what had happened if one of them got an injury out of Keenan and Mina. I thought we've got no depth because I don't think Holgate's good enough which he's probably proved me wrong on. Um, Mina's got the physical ability in spades. He's a, he's a good, big stopper of a defender. You know, he's powerful in the air. Unorthodox way of moving. Like, he sometimes just, you know, falls over and blocks you know, like shots on him. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a strange one like that. Um, but natural ability, I think he's got it. He, he, you know, he's obviously his brain sometimes abandons him. For me, I, I went into the season looking at him as our top defender because I had less doubts ability-wise over him than I did for Keane. Because although I've, I've gone up and cold on Keane, I, I definitely felt that Mina was our strongest defender. And, I, you know, I think on the strength of the whole season, I, I'd be writing, in writing my assessments. I think Mina's been one of he should He would be in there until very recently for a shout for our player of the season. Until, obviously, the turnaround to form of some other players, you know, Holgate, Calvert-Lewin and what have you but he's certainly the most consistent across the whole season I mean I think he surprised a lot of people Yeah I think during the early spell of the season when we were really poor under Silver I think he was one of the few who could sort of walk out of it with his head held high I think before the certainly before Duncan Ferguson took over he was probably one of the few with any sort of respectability from the early stages of this season and obviously there's there's plenty we'd want to gloss over in that first couple of months of the season but 
How do you think he's gone on? I do feel that since Ancelotti's come in, there's been a lot of rotation between the three centre-backs, hasn't there? Yeah, I mean, more so than you'd expect. There was a lot of times where you go, oh, what's he dropped in for and all that? It just seems to be something Ancelotti does. You know, until the season stoppage, um, he, I definitely got the impression that he was having a good look at the players he had to see if he wanted to keep going forward. But... He sort of landed on an unlikely but effective centre-back partnership of Holgate and, um, and Mina. Because Holgate's pace and his ability on the ball allowed Mina to go into his more natural position. The right-hand side centre-back who goes to meet the ball, the, you know, the, the dominant centre-back of the pair. And... To be honest, Carragher, I hate to call Carragher, but he got it right on uh, on Sky once. He said a lot of centre-back partnerships are like big brother, little brother. You know, like One's physically more powerful and commanding and one is more of a footballer. And I think that is, you know, what we, after a fashion, what we've got with Mina and Holgate. Um, so now I think, you know, looking to go forward, I think Mina is up against Keane for that spot. I don't think Mina... Is up against Holgate. I think Holgate starts anyway. He's the only one who's appropriate for that uh, position Certainly. in the team of the, of the ball playing centre backs. But I think Mina is a long way ahead of Keane. When everyone's fit, I don't think Keane gets anywhere near the team over either of them. Well, there you go. And I think I'll be honest. I, I don't want to be blow my own trumpet here because I'm. It's going to be one of them. I like such and such before it was cool. But I thought when Mina first arrived, I was hoping that it would end up being a partnership between Mina and Holgate out of the four defenders we had. But obviously it turned out to be the other two, Keane and Zuma, who went on to be the main one. And I thought, oh, there's me with egg on my face and then look what happens. What a difference a year makes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't lie. I was a Mason Holgate doubter for a long time. I felt like he could be a good right-back, um, but not a centre-back. And proved me wrong. But um, I was the opposite. I thought that Mina and Zuma would have been the, the ideal partnership because, you know, the combination of everything. But then uh, they tried that once against Newcastle. And it, you know, the, the, the game after the, the derby where Pickford dropped the ball, it was key, It was Mina and uh, Zuma for that game and that game only as a partnership. And I don't think that meant that's it. They're not good enough. They can't, you know, they drew a home to Newcastle. They can't, you know... They can't play well together, but I would, I would have, if we'd have got to him, or I would have went into the season wanting that to be the centre back partnership personally. But whatever combination, I think for a lot of people, Mina was in it. I don't think anyone went to the season, very few at least, thinking Keane and Holgate will be our partnership. Well, definitely. I think for me, it was more Holgate was the quickest, and I was hoping that he'd kick on. And in fairness, he has now. But at the, t- at the time, like maybe just over a year ago, it didn't look likely. And no, you're right. Well, he's done well, hasn't he? He's done very well. And, of course, Yeri Mina has been, like you say, probably the main centre-back partner he's had. And we've been doing pretty well at the back since Carlo took over. Obviously, there's one game we've got to focus on since Carlo took over, and it's that game where he scored twice against Watford. And uh, goes at the fans, apparently. He goes at the Watford fans with his dancing. And I, think- I mean... When we signed him, everyone knew him as that Colombia defender who kept scoring headers at the World Cup. Then people saw that he was that he dances whenever he scores, and um, he only scored against Burnley the season before, didn't he? And he only danced so, yeah. for like a second. Um, 
he had a goal ruled out this season um, for offside when there was uh, not offside, sorry, for a foul and there was not. I was at the it. West Ham game, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. And then obviously he scores two um, at Watford, and we finally get to see his uh, his dancing celebration because it was ruined at Burnley and it taken away from us against West Ham. So we've been waiting nearly two years to see Yeri Mira score a goal and start dancing and. Wait, the sec when he scores at Goodison, you know the roof's gonna blow off because everyone's waiting for him to do it. You just know he's gonna net at the street ends and just start dancing in one of the corners, and everyone's gonna be loving life. It's one if we ever get if we ever get back into stadiums, that is, if we ever go to Goodison again. Well, then, um, of course, Yeti Mina though that, that I just remember him whines. There's a fan who gets really triggered by his dancing and like loses it in the post-match interview. Oh um, yeah. It's absolutely hilarious, but he, again, it was one of those. He he is a threat from set piece, and I don't think our set piece delivery is good enough to be honest to get the most out of him in that respect. God knows why we've got. I mean, it's just the case of Everton, isn't it? We've got Sigurdsson, who spent his whole career being excellent from set pieces, and now all of a sudden at Everton don't score off many set pieces. He hasn't scored a direct free kick. Yet and Mina suddenly can't find, find the ball off corners, which is cursed. There must be some kind of Everton constant in there that tells every corner taker to hit the first man. But uh, obviously, before we finish, um, Yeri Mina season review, what would you give him? What score out of 10? Um, I'd give him a six out of 10. That sounds like it's harsh, but I don't want to add, you know, I don't want to be going too mad and giving him higher than that. But I think he's been, you know. Been okay, it's been above average, but not doesn't set the world on fire. Because let's be honest, only one of two players have set the world on fire for the season. Well, I, mean, yeah. I think he's been the most consistent, but not the most exciting. I'd say it that way. Yeah, that's probably a good way of putting it. I've gone with a similar score myself, so yeah, it's that's kind of the general consensus. I think on Mina's season, he's done pretty well, but. Like you say, it's a, he's a, he's a centre back. He's never going to set the world alight. No, exactly. But he's done well. Been Mister Consistent for the majority of the season compared to some of the other players. Even some of the better players for the season of year haven't been as consistent as him. Certainly, but there you have it. That's the verdict on Yeri Mina for the season. That brings us to the end of this analysis. Teddy and I are going to do our second performance review of the squad for this season. If you've tuned into the Yeti Mina one, which we've already done, then you'll understand we're disregarding any potential ending to the season, should it resume, given the considerable differences in circumstances. We'd be first to focus on one of this season's new signings, Alex Iwobi. Iwobi was the last of our plethora of new arrivals last summer and came in for a tasty £35 from Arsenal. I'm not going to lie, when I saw this was a going on deadline day, I was doing the live stream on the Toffee Blues YouTube channel and I was absolutely horrified that we were going to pay this kind of money. Nonetheless, he came in and he was expected to add some pace, power, a bit of skill to our attacking options and having only turned 24 last week, there is still potential for him to grow as an Everton player. But Nonetheless, we're still going to scrutinise him because that's what we do. Terry, how would you think Iwobi's first season at Goodison has gone? Uh, it's a strange one, really, isn't it? I mean, you, you mentioned it there. You know, he was bought on deadline day and he seemed to have all the hallmarks of a panic buy. 
you know, we, we sold um, Adam Ola Luckman and not replaced his position in the squad. Um, We've been linked in the press with Wilfried Zaha um, for about a week, week and a half. Um, you know, rumours of you know bids and then bids including swap deals and all that. And then out of nowhere, um, we're bidding for Alex Obi. You've said thirty-five million. I'd seen that you know it could rise to that kind of thing, and it's actually a more like twenty-seven million. Even still, still, it's tasty, isn't it? Still is great. Like I mean, he he was. It's a weird one because Iwobi, I think, you know, can be a good player. You know, his chance creation stats before he came to the club were quite good for Arsenal. Like, obviously, assists and goals and all that, you know, not not great. But he was an industrious, creative player. So, you've got to remember as well, this the sort of environment he was bought in. He was bought by Marco Silva. And Marco Silva religiously played 4-2-3-1. So, I wonder whether he wasn't even bought to play wide that he was going to he was bought to sort of add competition for Gilfie Sigurdsson because Gilfie Sigurdsson is the number 10 after being bought with a plethora of number 10s ended up being the only number 10 and he had no competition whatsoever so now obviously we're playing it will be you know on either wing and you know under Ancelotti and under um, Duncan Ferguson for a brief spell but he was brought in with a different shape, a different team, and probably a different role in mind. And he started well. I mean, I, a lot of fans won't have been, you know, excited by him because it was a player that Arsenal fans didn't think was very good. Like, you know, Arsenal fans, he, he was a bit of a whipping boy for them. But then on the other hand, it could be he could have been, you know, he was their academy product. Could have been similar to you know us with Barkley. Like some of people overrated was, them. Yeah, I think it was very Absolutely. similar to that actually. Some people overrated him in their fan base, and some people underrated him. You know, it was hard to get a good picture of what he was actually like as a player because the, you know, opinions of fans is always a bit skewed for their own academy players. You know, either negatively or positively. But he came in. He started well. He scored like he scored um, against Wolves. Scored against um, Lincoln. You know, headed goals which he wasn't really known for. He he started off well. And he, he was in the team, and I don't think anyone thought. I mean, I, I didn't personally think he was going to come in and replace Bernard because Bernard was one of our better players from the season before. I genuinely thought he's going to come in and be competition slash a replacement for Sigurdsson, who's getting a bit older now. And the one time that he did actually, well, tell a lie, the two times he actually did play that role of behind the striker, it was completely different. He would, you know, Sigurdsson was more, you know, was a statue in that number 10 position, would stand next to Calvert-Lewin and Calvert-Lewin just, you know, wasn't getting any joy from that formation of the team. And then when it will be played, it was against West Ham and he did it against Sheffield Wednesday as well. That's right, yeah. And he just, different dynamic to the team, you know, where Wobie was travelling with the ball more than Sigurdsson does. You know, his movements off the ball was a lot better. He was creating space. And it's, Almost, you know, the one one of the victims of the change of formation, I think, will be a Wobie because when he's going to play, he's going to play in that left-hand side role and compete with Bernard. And he's not going to get the freedom to move about that he, you know, that he would have had in a number 10 position, but I don't see us going back to that. So I think he's been sort of, you know, lost between the lines. And, I mean, I, his injury hasn't helped. He, well, since he's come back from the injury, he's not been very good. 
you know, he's not been terrible, but he's not been very good. And it's led to a lot of people sort of writing him off and, Definitely. and you know, thinking he's worse than he probably is. But it's whether he can, he, the, the, the gauntlet's been laid down to him now. He needs to carve himself out of position in this team, no matter where it is. If he thinks his best position in this formation is going to be that sort of left-hand side, you know, tucked in wide player role that Bernard's been playing, it's wide open for him because Ancelotti doesn't seem, for whatever reason, stuck on Bernard. Um, Bernard no. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't seem like he's, he's he's as convinced as on Bernard as the supporters are. So Wobie's got a chance if when when you know we're doing the, the season reviews now because when it comes back it's going to be like another mini season, isn't it? It's, it's not going to feel like the same season. It's going to have its own pre-season, everything. So Bernard, um, excuse me, Wobie needs to treat this as. I'm going to use these nine games. I'm going to get in the team, you know, if if they do play, that is, and I'm going to, you know, put my marker down. I've been given a sort of little mini blessing because I've managed to get myself back up to the same speed as everyone else now because everyone's been off. That's it, yeah. And again, I think, like you say, it's the these are the kinds of issues you end up having when you have to sack managers on the regular, like we have been doing. You get players who were signed by previous management who now have. A difficulty fitting into the new manager system. And yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely the biggest casualty of that. Like you say. Yeah, I mean, he, he let's let's be honest. He was a panic buy. He was bought for a position we don't play anymore. Um, and he's always you know been hot and cold in his career. There's been you know players who sorry supporters of Arsenal loved him and supporters of of Arsenal who hated him. And I think it's going to be the same. With Everton, there'll be a lot of people who'll never be convinced by him. Something I've made my mind up pretty early on is he can't play on the right. My no, that's, that's, that's very, very certain to yeah. me. He was appalling when he played there. Yeah, but possibly on that left-hand side with um, Luca Dean overlapping him, there's a chance for him to play there. You know, he's he's still young. He's you know we could get you know some money back for him if we you know if Ancelotti decides he wasn't going to use him, but I don't think we will. I think he'll be. I think next season could be a a watermark season for him, where he um, a watershed. I don't know, whichever that would water something. Watershed, the one. I think we're trying to get <laughs> Not no watermark. Something you put on a Photoshop artwork, isn't it? Um, yeah, could be a big season for him because you know obviously this season's been interrupted by injury and then lastly the coronavirus. But he did start okay. You know, scored goals, impressed in his number ten position. But now the challenge is there. Got to, you know, you've moved to another club from your boyhood club. You need to, you know, really establish yourself now. You're not going to get any favours. That's it, definitely. And I mean, what do you think the future holds for the Wolby then? What do you think he'll do next season? Is, is there a place for him? Or I mean, I, th- I think he'll still be here next season. That's for sure. But what happens beyond that? Do you think he's got an opportunity? Will he take it to sort of re-establish himself on the wing or in centre mid or something or? Do you think he's that adaptable? I think he's only. I think if we stick with this formation, he's only got one chance, and it's in that left-hand side, tucked-in position there that Bernard's been playing. Because as good as Bernard is, manager doesn't seem to be as struck on him as we are, and he will. He's got a chance to get in there, and it's the only position in a four-four-two that will suit him because he's not going to play centre midfield. He's certainly not going to play wide right, and he's not going to play up front. So, if he doesn't get any games there, he's going to be. That, that that position that um, Adam Oluwakunle found himself in of just being one of the substitutes every week and comes in to show the game up or see if he can 
you know, make something happen. But he's, you know, he's, he's got the tools, physically strong, you know, a good footballer on his day, but just needs to prove it consistently. Because he has say, as many games as good games. He's only turned 24 last week. I mean, he's still a young player, like you say, plenty of potential. Uh, it's 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 all on him really if he wants to fulfil it at Everton. Yeah, true. It, it it is. It's you know. I don't think we're going to be looking to sell him because our transfer fees are going to be you know deflated uh, when transfers do end up happening again. So we that we take a loss on him at the minute. So I think we probably will stick with him. I think Bernard and Iwobi are going to spend all next season fighting for that same shirt, but um. All the places in the team are going to be a little bit, um, a little bit easier to get into, but it will be. I don't think suits any others, which is unfortunate for them. It's one of them. I think obviously the pressure is very much on him to establish himself now, and the jury's still out from both fans and manager at this stage. I think, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, hasn't had much of a crack under Ancelotti because he'd only just come back from injury before the virus. You know, you know, started at um, Watford and it didn't seem fit, but he did okay. And um, after that, you know, he's he come in here and there. But I think it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see whether Ancelotti uses him once everyone's back and more or less everyone's fit. Yeah, so obviously we're going to conclude here. What would be your score out of 10 for Iwobi's performance this season? Um, five. I mean, it's uh, you know, I gave Yeri Mina a six and I feel harsh with that now since I'm giving Iwobi a five. But... Yeah, I don't think I think he's been good enough. You know, he's too good for a four, not good enough for a six. I just think you know, yeah, that's spot on. I think that's exactly what I'd have gone with myself. So, yeah, got injured. I think we could have you know decided either way, but I don't think he's he's played enough games to really go either way. Certainly, I think that's like I say, the jury's still out, and I think that's probably the general consensus at the moment that moving forward, I think if you ask so many people, our season's gone as first season at Everton. I think everyone would say it's. It's been its stop-start season, middle of the road, and a five out of ten is pretty much justified. Yeah, I mean, if we do manage to play these nine games, we'll do another mini-season review. Yeah, hopefully. yeah we'll do it. It's the, the, the post-post-season review. Yeah, hopefully yeah, much better. Hopefully for everyone, of course, nine games maybe to give us a bit of a lift, and you know, it might be better than we expect. But there you have it. That's the verdict on Alex Iwobi from Terry and I. Five out of ten. That brings us to the end of the season review for Alex Iwobi. And for our podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in as well. Unfortunately, we haven't got any quiz to finish off this week. So that means it was up to our very own Terry to pick what song he wanted to finish off on and on Terry's request we're going to finish this week with The Land of Confusion by Genesis a pretty fitting song for the current scenario so there you have it a brilliant choice from Terry if you'd ask me and you'll get to enjoy Genesis for to see us out at the end of the show so thank you guys for tuning in on the Toffee Blues <laughs>